Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16? My name is Jake Osborne. I'm the student ministries director here at Christ Covenant Church, and I have the privilege of sharing from the Word um, in our 2 Corinthians series uh, this morning. In uh, the end of Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry in 2 Corinthians 7. So, as a student ministries director, when I introduce my lessons, I usually will do this thing, I'll ask an introduction question, but I'll usually ask a question in such a way that I can twist whatever the answer is to make it the wrong answer. So, I'd, like an example, if, I was to, if this was youth group, and I was asking a question, maybe your teen is sitting next to you squirming right now because they know the reality of this, uh, I would ask the question, should Christians be comfortable and so I'm thinking, you know, immediately their reaction is going to be, no, no, Christians shouldn't be comfortable because they're getting images of people like kicking up their feet on the couch, eating potato chips, or, you know, not doing hard things. Like the, the, the road that, of following Christ is hard. It's narrow, and few will find it. That you have to pick up your cross and follow me. So they're thinking, no, no, Christians should not be comfortable. But then wait, maybe somebody else says, yeah, no, Christians should be comfortable, right? We should be comforted. By the truth of Christ. We should be comforted by the promises we have in, in the gospel, right? We should be comforted by our hope. And so, no matter what the student answers, I'm going to twist their, their answer to say, oh, Christians shouldn't be comfortable. Don't you believe in the comfort of the gospel? And, uh, and it's always a fun time. But the reason I would do that is not just simply to be cruel uh, or annoying. The reason I do that is to point out that there's two definitions functioning here. We got worldly comfort, and we got the comfort that comes with the gospel. Those are the two definitions. I would draw that out in the introduction, and I, I want to draw that out this morning because there are two definitions of worldly comfort and of comfort that comes with the gospel. And not only that, but worldly grief and grief that comes in gospel confrontation. In fact, the way we confront one another is completely changed by the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And I want to look at that in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16 this morning. How does the gospel change how we confront one another? As Paul finishes his defense of his apostolic ministry. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16 uh, before we begin. It says this, Paul writes, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to, into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but it, he, by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For, if, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it that the letter grieved you though only into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas 
worldly grief produces death. For, the, for what earnestness this godly grief has produced zeal. What punishment? At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent of the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comforted, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made about him to you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also the boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. This is God's word. So, to introduce kind of what's happening here in the book of 2 Corinthians, especially if you haven't been with us. So, Paul is writing the book of 2 Corinthians as a defense here of his apostolic ministry. That there were people at the church in Corinth who were challenging uh, that Paul was truly an apostle and that, that his authority to teach them. But before that, Paul had... Way back long before this, he had planted a church in Corinth. He was the one who planted the church that he's writing to. And he had written another letter to them, and actually two other letters to them. There's 1 Corinthians that we have in the Bible, and there's Corinthians 1.5 that we don't have. Um, and it kind of described, Paul describes this letter a little bit throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, this other letter that he wrote. And he actually even mentions it here of, this letter he sends with Titus, um, it was specifically in regards to church discipline. There was an individual in the church of Corinth who needed church discipline and acted on him. And Paul didn't seem that, he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he was not satisfied with how the church in Corinth was treating this individual who needed this church discipline. So he wrote a letter to them. He was going, he had a planned visit to go back to the church in Corinth, but when him and Titus were in Ephesus, he said, I can't, I, I don't think it's good for me to go back to Corinth right now uh, and to, to, to talk to them about what's been going on. I think I should st send you instead with this letter and you should confront them about how they've been handling this issue of church discipline. So, he says, we'll meet back up in Troas. I'm going to head north of Troas. You go over to Corinth. So Titus brings this letter to Corinth of confrontation on how they've punished this individual, how they've handled this church discipline. And we see earlier on in the letter that Paul even mentions how they did handle it, that they had handled it so thoroughly and so harshly that it was like, whoa, back off a little bit. That when they got this letter, Paul, what Paul talks about is this godly grief that leads to repentance. He's talking, he's remembering that while he was in Macedonia, they had responded with incredible earnestness in this, this case of church discipline. They wanted to clear their name. They wanted to repent of not being obedient in church discipline. There is eagerness, there was indignation, and he says, what punishment? So again, he says they, they really came down hard on this guy to show that they were repentant of not handling this situation correctly. So Paul, their hearts are broken. Can you imagine that? Like, think about this. Think about, like, Pastor Larry. 
You know, if he, for some reason, saw that we weren't handling church discipline correctly, and he wrote a letter to us saying, I'm not going to worship with you right now. I just don't feel like it would be good for me to be with you. I'm going to send this letter of confrontation saying, you haven't handled this church discipline right. We would be longing for him to be back worshiping with us. We would be like, man, we're going to prove it. If We're going to come down hard in this, this discipline to show that we're going to clear our name because of because of our desire to be reconciled. Larry, there was this grief that was in their heart that Paul didn't come. That they were really broken hearted. And it was a grief and an earnestness, as Paul says in verse 12, for us, them, them who did not, those who did not come to Corinth on that planned visit. He saw an earnestness for that reconciliation with them. So Paul in Macedonia, that's a crazy situation up there. There's riots going on. It's super tense. There's what he says, fighting without and fear within. They had no rest. Paul, and people are on trial. There's all these false accusations going around. And he get, this is where Titus comes in. Titus, instead of meeting him up in Troas, now meets him in Macedonia further down the road with this report of how the Corinthian church responded to his confrontation. And I can't imagine being in such a tense situation in Macedonia where I'm being persecuted intensely and being like, oh yes, let me hear about the confrontation in Corinth. But that's what Paul wanted to hear about. And as he heard about their response, he was comforted. He was overflowing with joy because he saw how that godly grief produced repentance in that church. So now, what is Paul doing? Where is he at right now in the book of 2 Corinthians? He's finishing his defense of his apostolic ministry. And he's just had some hard points of confrontation too. Right? In chapter 6, verse 11, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted by your own affections. And then he goes on to say, Do not be unequally yoked. He's confronting them boldly to unyoke themselves with these false teachers, these super apostles they had been with. Even earlier on, in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's confrontational language. And then he reminds them of the promises of God, how they are God's people, they are God's temple, they are his sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and, and the spirit, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's in seven one. He's confronting them again, saying, you need, to, you need to deal with a situation with the super apostles. And so he knows that this is a confrontation and it could be hard. It could grieve their hearts in receiving this confrontation that he's given to them. It could, it could have that similar response. But Paul says, he doesn't say this to condemn them. He has great boldness towards them. He has great pride in them. He's filled with comfort. He's overflowing with joy. Why does he have this? This outlook on this confrontation he's having with them, it's because he's seen how God has worked in the past. That's why he brings up this former confrontation that Titus had delivered to them. The pattern of confrontation that, that Paul shows. And see how the gospel changes our definition of how we confront one another, how we are comforted, how we grieve. Here, here, the two ways I want to say that the gospel is different than, the, than, than worldly confrontation. I'm sure there's more than two, but I want to talk about these two. The value we have in our relationships is different than the world's. 
and the hope we have in our confrontation is different than the world's. So let's talk about those two things. First of all, the value of relationships. This is the main difference, I'd say, in how we treat one another and how the world treats each other. Now, I tried to build a straw man here. I realized that. If you don't know what that is, that's a, that's a logical fallacy where you make the opposing argument seem really weak and easy to dismantle. I realized I was trying to make worldly confrontation seem super weak when I was studying for this. I'm looking up all of these different worldly patterns, of how they handle confrontation online, and I'm actually reading through and I'm like, shoot, this is actually good stuff. Yeah, they, yeah you should... Forgive one another. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You should definitely be clear in communication. Oh, you should be weighing, you know, the, the way your words are landing and, and listening to one another. This is, this is actually good stuff. But there was one difference that I was noticing over and over and over again is that there would be phrases like this. Like, you need to evaluate for yourself if it's even worth entering into this confrontation. Is this person a toxic person to you? Does this person fulfill your needs? Is it worth going through this hardness of confrontation with this person based on what? How they fulfill you. How you feel in their relationship. Are you willing to go through the hard so that you can continue be, to be fulfilled from this relationship? See, the highest value that someone who doesn't believe in God can offer to a relationship is what they internally feel, right? Like how the other person makes them feel. That changes for us because it's not about the reality of how valuable that person is to us anymore, right? It's how valuable that person is to God. I, I love the way that Paul describes the church in Acts chapter 20. When he's talking about the church, he's talking to the, the elders in Ephesus and he describes them as the flock for whom Christ died, right? That's a much higher value than something internally this is identity that's based on the promises of God. This is based on what he's just written here in 2 Corinthians where he says that they are a temple of the living God, that they are the people of God, that they are holy, that they are sons and daughters of God. In light of those promises, that changes the way we view one another. We aren't simply viewing one another about how valuable, valuable we are to me as an individual, but how valuable you all are, each other we are, to God as his people, as those, as the flock for whom Christ has died. That changes the value in our relationship. And Paul demonstrates that value that he has by this tone of honoring the, the church as he's confronting them. He's not shaming them, he's honoring them. He's bringing up these evidences of grace in their life. He talked about how they responded so well that he could see the Holy Spirit leading their hearts into repentance and that he had boasted about them to Titus and that when Titus went and saw them, man, he was, he, all the boasting and all the more was confirmed by the way their hearts were responding in repentance. Paul, in the middle of this confrontation, or at the end of this confrontation, in 2 Corinthians 7, where he's finishing defending his apostolic ministry, he goes on to honor them and say, I know you respond well because of how I've seen God's grace in your life. God's grace has been all over your life. 
I'm so thankful. I boast about how God's grace has been in your life and how you've responded humbly in, in repentance. He honors them. And this really exemplifies Christ's attitude towards us, doesn't it? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That I, I think the perfect example of the honor of the gospel is the picture of the prodigal son, right? You have a son who's left his father, who spat on his father and taken his inheritance and squandered it. And the thoughts going through his mind are, if I go home just to be a slave and grovel at my father's feet, if I come home in shame, maybe he'll receive me in shame. And as he's walking, the father runs to him and hugs him and puts on a cloak of honor and a ring of honor and makes him the honorable guest at the feast and throws a celebration in his honor. That that's the father's love for us in the gospel that even when we come in our shame, that Christ receives us in honor. So as we see Christ's honor towards us in our repentance... The way that he honors us as his children, even though we were his enemies. I mean, that's this whole ministry of reconciliation. You can't have true reconciliation without this honor of God that has been graciously given to us. That's, that's demonstrated in just how Paul even talks about the church in Corinth here. And I want to I bring that up too because we're talking about godly grief this morning. Godly grief that leads to repentance. And there is a difference between godly grief and shame. I think that's really important to distinguish here, right? So what is godly grief and what is shame? Grief, I want to think, of, we should think about grief as mourning over something that has been lost. So in the context here, he says in light of these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, right? So in light of the promises of God, that, what he had said even earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 15, he said, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Saying, we have this, this ability now to live this new life in Christ, this reconciled friendship with Jesus. But instead, when we're confronted with our sin, we see our sin, and we're grieved by our sin because we're like, I haven't been living in light of these promises. It says, I've received the grace of God. All of this beauty of the gospel has been given to me in what Christ has done, but I haven't been living in light of it. I've been living in a way as though I'm still an enemy of God by, by not repenting and changing. And every moment that's not living in light of the grace of God is wasted. And so you would be grieved. You should be grieved if you recognize you are living in sin in opposition to the truth of what your new identity in Christ is. So that's grief, but shame. Shame is not just this morning, but it's a positional lowering. It's a dishonoring, a looking down on, on people. And with shame, there, there is shame in the world, right? There's shame in our sin. We were covered in shame. Look, think about the the beginning of the Bible, when they sinned, what was their first response? They were ashamed. They hid themselves. They killed animals. To, or they, were, they were given clothes to cover their shame, right? They, their shame in our sin. But 
the gospel removes that shame. That your position before God is not based on how good you are, right? You are not, there's not like higher class Christians and lower class Christians based on personal righteousness. No, that's anti-gospel. That in Christ, he has paid for our sins, he has reconciled us, he has torn the curtain, that we stood guilty and accused, that sin has been completely paid and dealt with. And he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He's just talked about this. Our standing before God is based on the righteousness of Christ given to us. So when Jesus sees each and every one of us who believe, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That is honor. We receive the honor of Christ in the gospel, not the shame. So, our, our often res- the response you might often have instead of this honoring is a, sh- is a shameful response to sin. That when you see others or even yourself in sin, you look down on them as lesser Christians. And often that shameful attitude of looking down your nose at another sinner, instead of viewing them in light of the honor that, and that Jesus has given them in the gospel, when you look down at them because of their sin as these shameful second-class Christians, that's, that's a false gospel, right? And it'll, it'll point us to not confrontation, like we see in this passage, of actually going to our brother and sister and, and seeking their restoration, but instead just looking back from a distance and saying, man, I can't believe how sinful they are. And looking down your nose at someone. That's shame. And Romans 10.11 says it clearly. Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame. That's, that's anti-gospel. To live in a way that shames people in their sin. No, Paul doesn't do that. He values their relationship because of what Christ has done. And he actually, in the middle of this confrontation, showers them with honor. That's because Paul has... He knows what Christ ha- how Christ has honored him. So that's the value of our relationships that's different. Now let's talk about our hope in confrontation. This is where we get into godly grief. And this is where worldly grief and godly grief are really juxtaposed. They're compared to one another to show how different they are. In verse 10 in chapter 7 it says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate that. And I think even Mark's word this morning, his, his timely word about grief and about those who are remembering those who've lost loved ones in the room. That, I know this is a heavy and a potent illustration, but to think about those we know who have perished apart from Christ. That for them, they're is no hope. That's grief and mourning that leads to death, right? That when you're at a funeral of an unbeliever, you just look at it, a dead body, and then you know there's no hope for that soul. That's such a potent picture of the hopelessness and the blight of life, life apart from Christ, not just death apart from Christ, right? That 
if I come to you and I ask you to change, that you would fulfill me better. Ask you to die to yourself and to lay down what you would rather do. There's no reason to do that. What? Other than, okay, well, I might, I might, this is, this is where this value of relationship question comes in for not just the person who's confronting someone else, but for the person who's being confronted, right? They have to ask the question, is it valuable enough for me? Is that person valuable enough for me to lay down what, how I act, the way I live? There's no real hope, though, in life change. There's no real reason to lay down those things. That's where the miracle of regeneration has to come in before we can have true repentance and reconciliation. Paul talks about this. Uh, I got this quote. This is an Alistair Begg quote. I got it from Shylin's Lyrical Theology album, uh, the interlude to, to regeneration. Uh, this, is what, this is the Alistair Begg quote that, that plays before this song. It says this, The gospel is not a word of encouragement to those who are sort of well-meaning people who would like to add a little religion. It's not a word of encouragement to those who would like to add a little Jesus in their life. No, the word of the gospel is a word that comes to the rebel heart. I am a rebel against God. I may be indifferent to him. I may be antagonistic to him. But I'm actually rebelling against him. He then comes by the Bible and says, I'm commanding you to do an about turn to repent of your sins and to believe in me. And the individual says, there is no way that that is going to happen. It will take a miracle for that to happen. Yes, it will. That is the miracle of regeneration. That we don't just repent and change our hearts on our own. In order for true heart change to come in, our hearts of stone have to be made into hearts of flesh. When it talks about this in Ezekiel 36, when it's in Christ, he is a new creation, right? That regeneration has to precede our repentance. That without these new hearts, we are unable to repent and to have true life change. And without that repentance in our heart, how can we have reconciliation? There's no power in that. But we as believers, our, our confrontation is flipped on its head. We can confront one another knowing that the Holy Spirit indwells the person we're confronting as another believer and that Spirit empowers repentance through this newness of heart, this regeneration of our hearts. So when he says godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, that repentance is because we have been made new. We have been given new hearts in the gospel. In light of the truth of regeneration in Christ, we can understand godly grief as having a new heart, a new life, having a reconciled, adopted relationship with God as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as His representative people. And then living as though we are still dead to our sins, right? That's dead in our sins, right? That godly grief, when, when, we, when we see that we have this new hope, this new life in, in regeneration, but we recognize we've still been living in our sins, that would produce godly grief, right? You would want to live in this newness of life, this promise, this hope that we have. And so 
You can imagine that in a, situ- a situation where you're faced with that godly grief, many of you have experienced that before, where the Holy Spirit shows that you shows you that you you have these new promises and these new life that you don't need to live in this sin any longer. Your heart is grieved, right? You felt that burden on your heart, and those of you who have listened to it have then responded in earnestness, in eagerness. What does he say? How, what What does he say? Their response was. He says that. They would cleanse themselves from every defilement of the body, 7-1. Or they would have earnestness, uh, 7-11. Earnestness to kill their sin. Eagerness to clear yourselves. To reconcile with God's people. Indignation at your sinfulness. To forsake the promises of God. A zeal to respond with change and repentance. Paul points out all of these evidences of this repentance that's taken place in their heart. These evidences of God's grace that, that repentance has led to. This, this change that takes place in recognition of sin and leaning into that, that godly grief. What a gift gospel confrontation is to break our heart and lead us to grief that leads us to repentance, right? That's a gift that our hearts are broken and because that only happens through the power of the Spirit that we can be led to repentance, right? It's only because we have new hearts that we can repent. And this grief is a part of that repentance. That's why Paul says he is full of comfort. His comfort is because he knows their hearts are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. His Overflowing with joy is knowing the fruit that will come of this repentance. Of a further walking in newness of life. His perfect confidence and boldness towards them in this current confrontation is because he knows the spirits at work in their hearts to change them. That's the definition of comfort and gospel confrontation. Yet, Is this what we believe to be our comfort and our joy when we think about grief and confrontation? Is this how you respond to grief? And I pray that you would hear, I'm going to bring up four different scenarios and I, I ask that you would listen and evaluate if this is you, if you have a hard heart to this grief that leads to repentance, this tool of the Spirit to to help us to live in light of the reconciliation we have with God. Are you looking for comfort, joy, and confidence? Or are you looking simply to get rid of the pain of this godly grief like the rest of the world does? When your spouse or maybe your sibling confronts you, Do you try to do away with godly grief you feel in your heart by loudly justifying why it was okay that you sinned against them? When you feel the pang of godly grief over conviction over private sin, do you try to do away with it internally by minimalizing your sin? It's not that big of a deal. When a friend confesses sin to you, do you immediately offer them the false grace of, oh, we all do that. Don't feel bad. 
instead of leaning into God's grace and sitting with them in their godly grief over their sin. What we see in 2 Corinthians 7 is so much more than how than a how-to for Christian confrontation. It is a belief in our honor of the gospel, our regeneration of our hearts that enable us to repent, the reality of our reconciled relationship with God through Christ. And the way we enter into gospel confrontation with each other is directly related to what we believe about these truths in the gospel. If you're here this morning and you recognize you are not reconciled with God, that your heart hasn't been made new, and that you are living in a life of grief that only leads to death, living in a life where the highest value is simply yourself, and living in a life that will lead to a death where there is nothing but bleakness and no hope. If you're living in that life this morning, I invite you to believe in the work of Jesus Christ who died that you no longer have to live for yourself but you can live for the sake of him who died for you. That you can have a new heart and become a new creation and a friend of God and a child of God and a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are here and you believe that truth already, if you've already been received all of these promises and you're feeling godly grief now, even how you've responded to godly grief, lean into that. Pray that the Spirit uses that grief to lead you to repentance. And that we would all be ready to, to confront one another in honor for the sake of being overflowing with joy and comfort as we see the Spirit using our gospel, this gospel-centered confrontation. Let me pray. God, thanks for your word. And thanks for all of the hope that we have in the gospel and how it shapes our lives. And I pray that our confrontation would be shaped in light of all of these truths today. Thanks for speaking through um, your word this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.